Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. The teaching text today comes from Galatians 5, 22-25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Thanks, I'll take it, sure. Well, we've been studying uh, the same text for a couple of weeks, Galatians 5, 22 through 25, the fruit of the Spirit. In the summer, as people are coming and going, it's a great kind of like easy, accessible uh, Bible study on some of these virtues. Paul talks about them in terms of fruits, things that effervesce from the life of a community of people who love Jesus and who are walking in the Spirit. Those things just kind of bubble up. Effervesce. People tell me that I use interesting words. I did, that might be one of those. Effervesce is like when you go and buy a bottle of kombucha and you shake it up a little too much, it like effervesces out of the bottle. It's naturally effervescent. And love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, these things effervesce from the life of a community that is walking in the Spirit. And Paul shares all of this as kind of a, a good news antidote to those people who are trying to convince the Galatians that if they don't obey the Mosaic law, things are going to go off course. And Paul says, no, 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 no. If you live by the Spirit, you're in great shape. So trust Jesus, walk in the Spirit, and you're going to be okay. So we talked about love, uh, joy, peace. Last week was patience, and today we're going to talk about kindness. And kindness feels like this should be one of those, like, gimme kind of sermons. Like, it's going to be so easy and shallow. It's like, well, just don't be a jerk. It's that easy. But it turns out this one actually has uh, some weight to it, which I'm, I'm eager to share with you. Kindness is a major talking point in our culture right now. Uh, You see it on social media a lot. Um, People use the language of of being kind. But at Target right now, you can buy a lot of kindness-themed clothing. So all of these things, you can all of these shirts with these messages, you can buy at Target right now. One of those, just a t-shirt that says, be kind. Kindness is magic. Kindness is my superpower. Be kind to all kinds. Ride the kindness wave. That one's hilariously adorable. Be kind to your mind. Cultivate kindness. Kindness matters. Change the world with kindness. Always be kind. There's kind of a theme here. Target, there's like a kindness department within Target. They really want you to wear this clothing. It's kind of funny that like all of those are from one store. Um, why do you think there's so much talk of kindness? I think there are probably two reasons that I can think of. One of those is I think it's come as a corollary of the rise of social media in the last 15 years. So with with social media being so prevalent and in the middle of all of our lives, we're seeing a lot of people have a sense of anxiety go up, social comparison and self-worth. Like social comparison is up, self-worth is down. Um, Self-hatred is something that people are talking about. Bullying is an issue that's happening on social media. Uh, Many of us have been affected by those who've who've chosen to take their own lives. 
And so an environment where we're seeing people struggling with self-worth, struggling with self-hatred, dealing with bullying, the language of kindness is kind of a social antidote to that. And people are, are pushing this as a way of just, if you can be kind, then maybe terrible things won't happen. I think there's a really good message in there. I think at the same time, there's, there's another reason why kindness is so front and center. Uh, and unquestionably, I think it's a, a soft and a subtle effort to normalize all things LGBTQ. And I think one, uh, one tell about why there's this link between being kind, kindness is my superpower, uh, and the LGBT movement is there's a rainbow on these t-shirts half of the time. There's a relationship between being kind and normalizing and affirming all things LGBTQ. And I think, in my opinion, this comes with a really clear subtext that the people who don't readily publicly affirm LGBTQ folks and the whole movement are by nature unkind. The people who don't affirm that stuff, those are the mean people. Those are the bad people, and you don't want to be like those people. And I would just say, in fairness, that that message that people who don't affirm LGBTQ folks are unkind is not ungrounded in historical experience. I mean, all of us would probably say we know people who said really mean things about gay people. And there are folks who love Jesus in our congregation who are same-sex attracted, and they would say they've definitely heard Christians say stuff that's really, really mean about gay people, about LGBTQ people. I think the, the, the like, you know, picking low-hanging fruit example would be Westboro Baptist Church. Do you all know who I'm talking about when I say that? It's a fundamentalist church out of Kansas that shows up at, like, military funerals and places like that, holding up signs that say really hateful things about that group of people. But folks who work in, in the homeless community, even in Tulsa, would tell stories about the number of kids who are on the street because they came out to their parents, and their parents said, you're no longer welcome in our home. You're no child of mine, and so they're kicked out and they're living on the streets. Uh, lots of folks, you've, they're, they're, you know, YouTube clips that go around of people like me who carry or wear microphones saying really mean stuff, vengeful kind of stuff, stuff that is missing, uh, like lacks the love of God. Uh, so many people who were raised in the church have heard Christians say cruel and vile things about gay people. So the idea that to not affirm is to be unkind, that's been, that's been the, the experience of many people. So I would validate that. Some of you were here, uh, I thought of a funny joke just now, I was going to say, some of you were here a few years ago when I preached on uh, Christianity and homosexuality, and then some of those people who were here are not here anymore. <laughs> Sorry. Well, a few years ago, I preached on this. Uh, if you want to listen to the sermon, it's called Fountain of Life, based on a psalm. Uh, I preached on it in February of 2019. Um, but I preached on this topic of Christianity and homosexuality. And uh, in the sermon, one of the things that I did was I affirmed a biblical, like traditional sexual ethic of how we understand God's design for sexuality. But I also, in that sermon, myself repented and then urged the people of God to repent for sinful attitudes and behaviors toward gay people in particular. And what surprised me in preaching that sermon, I was pretty nervous about it to tell you the truth, what surprised me in preaching that sermon was that even though I affirmed a, a, a traditional biblical understanding of human sexuality, the first people who thanked me after preaching that sermon were gay folks in our church. 
or, or people who heard the sermon out somewhere on the internet because they're so used to Christians being haughty and mean-spirited and judgmental and unkind. But to say that to be kind requires having an affirming stance is, in my opinion, a weaponization of the idea of kindness. And it represents a form of ideological bullying. So if to be kind is to affirm and to be unkind is to not affirm, that that is a false either-or choice, in my opinion. And so we have to be really careful to pay attention to how conversations like this are being framed and who is doing the framing. You could, so you could think about it in the world of politics. When political conversations are framed as pro-rights or anti-rights, it's clear which side is in the right. Because who wants to be against people's rights? Pay attention to how the conversation is being framed and who is doing the framing. When a conversation is framed in terms of kind versus unkind, it's clear which side people of goodwill would naturally align with. To say in almost any conversation that uh, if, if you don't agree with or affirm X idea that's really important to me, then you're a bigot or a hate monger is just simply unfair and overly simplistic. If somebody were to say to you, I just don't think I believe in God anymore, we would not then say that that person is necessarily anti-faith. That's a false equivalency. Just say they don't believe, it doesn't mean they're against those who do. Or I think especially tragically, if somebody said they don't love pizza, it's not the same as saying they hate people who do, but we should pray for this population. It's very serious. When you hear people making these kinds of either-or choices, in my opinion, false choices, we need to recognize that we're dealing with propaganda. That's a really important word. It's a word like that idea is something that we need to develop like Holy Spirit-inspired discernment to be able to see it. When you hear either or false choices like this, we need to be aware we're dealing with propaganda. Someone is trying to compel you by force or by cultural pressure or by name-calling to get you to acquiesce, to submit to the worldview that they hold. They're bullying you into changing your mind. And I would say that kind of language, often employed by Christians, I would say at the same time, is not kind. It's not kind to talk to people like that. Okay, but let's go back to the very beginning. Let's start at the start. What is kindness? I've hinted around what I think kindness is not, but when we go to the Scriptures and we consider that one of the fruits of the Spirit is kindness, what is kindness? Here's my definition. You will be unsurprised to learn it is not short. (laughs) Here's my definition. Biblical kindness is an outward-facing posture of goodwill that is anchored in truth and motivated by mercy, that recognizes the image-bearing value of the other and is modeled most clearly by Jesus. It's an outward-facing posture. Uh, Kindness is a social word. It describes how you relate to other people. 
it's, it's, uh, it describes a manner in which like people, and sometimes I think people, how people feel about how we relate to them, but it's more than our feelings. It's, it's the way that we are postured toward them. It's a social posture, and it's a posture of goodwill, meaning that in our relationship, what I want for you, Joel, is for you to flourish. Like that's my desire for you too, Kasia. Yeah. My, when, I, when I'm thinking about you and praying about you and, and oriented toward you, what I want is for you to live into all that God has for you. I want you to be well. I want you to know Jesus. I want your life to blossom. Kindness is this outward-facing posture of goodwill, of wishing and willing the good of other people. At the same time, this, this, there's a vision of what flourishing looks like that is anchored in truth. God is the one who gives us a vision of what a good and beautiful life looks like. It's, it's anchored in and it's derivative of the things that God say lead to our flourishing. It's built on God's vision of flourishing for us, not just our own individual personal preferences. Biblical kindness is built on the foundation of what God says leads to a flourishing life. And it's motivated by mercy. A lot of times when we hear the language of kindness in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it assumes or suggests ignorance or folly on behalf of the one who's receiving kindness. They're usually acting in ignorance. We're going to give some examples of that in just a minute. But the recipient of kindness is usually a person who's acting in ignorance or folly. And finally, kindness recognizes the image-bearing value of the other. In, in the way that we think about the person receiving our kindness, we're, we're seeing them through God's eyes. If you've ever read the Jesus Storybook Bible, the first two chapters are about creation. And in describing humanity, it says, and they were lovely because he loved them. And kindness sees the person, this other person who often we've been malformed by sin. Like we often are not all that lovely, but we see this person through the eyes of grace, through the eyes of Jesus Christ, and they become lovely because he loved them. That's recognizing that they were made in his image. And Jesus is the one who personifies these qualities the most clearly. In the Old Testament, the, the, there's a word translated kindness or loving kindness in the New American Standard Version. Um, it's the word hesed in, the, in, uh, in Hebrew. I've had a, a good number of you have done a study of hesed before. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples of kindness or loving kindness in the Old Testament. Then the man bowed down. This comes from the book of Genesis. The man bowed down and worshiped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. God has made a promise to the family of Abraham. He was going to bless them and make them into a great family. But this is no easy blessing because Abraham and Sarah are old. They don't have any children. But God has covenant faithfulness to toward the family of Israel, and so they have children. God blesses their children. Every time it seemed like things aren't going to work out, God's loving kindness is extended toward these families, and a miracle happens. Uh, we could go to the book of Ruth. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, speaking of Boaz. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. God is providing for these widows, Naomi and Ruth. 
that God is showing his loving kindness toward them. A third example, we go to the book of Hosea. It was I who taught Ephraim. This just means Israel. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. In spite, this is God speaking to the prophet Hosea, in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness, God continued to show loving kindness toward that family, uh, showing, giving them this, this posture of goodwill. So go through the story of the Old Testament. This posture of goodwill enabled Yahweh to both permit Judah's exile, Israel and Judah's exiles. He let them face the consequences of their actions because his posture toward them was anchored in truth. But at the same time, he also lovingly called them home to himself because he was motivated by mercy. He respected their personhood, their ability to make decisions, self-determination, enough to let them face the consequences of their actions, though he warned and warned and warned them. But when they faced the consequences of their own actions, you know, the kind of natural punishment, he lovingly called them home and made it possible for them to do so. Biblical kindness is more nuanced than merely being nice. I have often been described as a nice person. Not always when I'm preaching, but interpersonally, I've often been described as a nice person, and truthfully, I bristle at it because niceness has a certain spinelessness to it. It's like just good to have around. Kindness, on the other hand, is a more robust and mature posture of goodwill toward other people. You might think, okay, what's going on in the New Testament? Where do we see this clearly in the New Testament? One moment that typifies this most clearly for me is Jesus in Luke 23. He has been flogged. He's been beaten. His beard has been ripped out. He's been spat on. He is carried to the cross after being flogged through the streets of the city. He is crucified at his feet. They're casting lots for his clothing. And on the cross, what is Jesus doing? He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. It's a posture of goodwill that's anchored in truth and motivated by mercy. Jesus prays these words at great personal cost, punched, flogged, humiliated, crucified. That's a vision of of kindness, of loving kindness from the Lord. It's not a pansy politeness. It's not a neutered niceness. It's a a resolute selflessness and a dedication to the good of the other, even when the other, and especially when the other, is being a fool. I want you to imagine, some of you who are animal lovers will appreciate this metaphor here. Imagine that you're walking down the street and you see this animal that has been hurt, and you just know this is an animal based on its behavior that has probably been abused by, by people. It's been abused by its previous owners, it's hurt, and you see this animal who's, who's, who's in such pain and you want to reach out and you help. Because you're a person who so loves these little creatures, it, it's so funny the relationship we have with animals. I mean, we love them like, like people, love them like our children, you know. But because you so care for animals, you overlook and you forgive that it's snarling and snapping at you because you see the bigger picture, you know that this, the animal is behaving like this because it's suffered under the hands of people who are not honoring God's creational mandate to lovingly rule over creation. 
This isn't how humans were meant to care for creation. You would rather see this animal be well. There's those, you know, clickbait kind of stories of people who find these animals and, and care them in, back into health. You feel tenderly for this animal, this dog, because you know in part its aggression is a product of its abusive environments. You see that this animal has value, so you approach with caution and care. And even though it might bite the hand that tries to feed and comfort it, you still persevere. And this gives us a picture of kindness. In spite of its aggression, we have a posture of goodwill, longing for the good of the other. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament that's that's often overlooked comes from Titus. Who reads Titus? You should. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. Why should we be like this? Why should we have this kind of posture of mercy and kindness? Well, at one time, we too were foolish disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, it changed things for us. Uh, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons in their book Good Faith get at this idea in another way. They say that in relating to a world where you've got competing ideologies and people of various backgrounds and life experiences, that we as followers of Jesus should be folks who have soft edges and firm centers. Every time I say that aloud, it sounds like it would be in a Snickers commercial or something. It sounds like a dessert. (laughs) We should be people who have soft edges and firm centers, meaning that at our core, we are people who are rooted in truth. Cavemen's Call had that old song based on a psalm. It said, we delight in the law of your word. Like at the core of who we are, we hang on every word that God has to say. The things that he says are true and good and beautiful and for our flourishing at our core, those are the things that we most delight in. We have a firm center, but we also have a soft edge in the way that we relate to people. We relate to them on the basis of, of mercy because we know what it's like to be outside of God's family and acting in ignorance and folly. A perversion of this idea is to have both soft edges and a soft center. And that is okay for brownies, but that is not okay for followers of Jesus. To have soft edges and a soft center is to be governed by niceness, but not by kindness. With a posture of kindness, there's warmth, there's approachability, and there's basic respect for other people while never abandoning what we understand God to have revealed to us. This is Kinnaman and Lyons. So Jesus related to people this way. Think about his interaction with the woman at the well or his responses to his interrogators or his life-giving answers to those with hungry hearts. 
He spoke from a firm center. But his hospitable, humble, soft edges allowed people to get close enough to hear him. The people that you disagree with, do you ever let them get close enough to, like, for them to actually hear you and for you to actually hear them? Jesus practiced the sacred art of seeing people. And when we have soft edges and firm centers, we can see people Jesus dearly loves. And when, aided by the Holy Spirit, we see them, we can look beyond trends. They're not just a a statistic. And into real people's hurts, hopes, and needs. How can we grow as people of kindness? The first thing I would say is we can ask God to fill us with His Spirit. Uh, the kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's, we grow in kindness indirectly by being filled with the Spirit and walking with the Spirit of God. So ask the Lord Jesus, hey, would you fill me again? Would you make me aware of your Spirit? Would, would the presence of the Spirit be manifest in my life through kindness, especially toward people who think differently than me? We might not naturally get along. The second thing that we can do to grow in kindness is to earnestly seek God's truth for how he intends for us to live, how he intends for us to flourish. We need to to know the scriptures. We need to have our, our hearts and minds renewed by living according to those rhythms of grace and living in means of grace. I think the third and importantly is we practice repentance ourselves and we're aware of the log in our own eyes. It's very easy to write off entire groups of people who sin differently than you do. If we're regularly aware of and confessing our sins, it's much easier to approach people who sin differently than we do with kindness because we know how difficult it is for us to change. The fourth thing is we ask the Lord to help us to see other people as He sees them. And you might think about in your own heart, who are the people that you're, you tend to be most judgmental toward or, or most uh, readily condemning toward? Who's it most difficult for you to be kind toward? And ask the Lord Jesus, help me see that person as you see them. You too has a great song about that, When You Look at the World. It's really good. When, I look, when you look at the world, what is it that you see? People find all kinds of ne- things that bring them to their knees. And talking about the, the, like the face of Jesus. I see an expression so clear and so true that it changes the atmosphere when you walk into the room. And Bono sings, so I try to be like you, try to feel it like you do, but without you, there's no use. I can't see what you see when I look at the world. Help me to see these people as you see them. And then fifth, we prayerfully practice extending kindness. How can I will the good of this other person in my interactions with them? As we come to the table today, there's, there's always a twofold rhythm as we approach the table. One of them is to repent, to, to reflect on the ways in which we're thinking wrongly. We need to have a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of practice. We may need to repent and, and confess, not from a position of fear, but because we want to live in the truth and we want to be well. So we may just confess, Lord, I have been judgmental. I have been mean. I have been closed off toward group of pe- groups of people. My actions have not been motivated by mercy or anchored in truth. Will you please forgive me and will you please help me? 
Remember that line from Romans chapter 2? It says, do you not remember that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance? And we've been holding the picket sign yelling, repent, and we've left kindness behind us. At the same time, we need to remember and believe the good news again of how Christ has shown his love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because we were among those sinners who were, who were regarded as beloved, we also ought to regard as beloved those who are not living in the truth and living lost in sin, dead to Christ. He died for us while we were yet sinners. And we look again as we come to the table to Jesus, who in everything is our North Star, who came from the Father full of grace and truth, and ask the Lord Jesus to transform us by His Spirit into people who look and smell and feel like Him in the world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I have touched on issues that are so sensitive in our world right now. If in anything I have spoken in error, I pray that you'll forgive me and, and the Spirit who guides us into all truth would uh, speak clear, clearly. I pray that you will forgive us, Jesus, who've walked with you for a long time, who tend to be like the judgmental older brother in the story you told, who tend to, you know, cite our own bona fides as a way of justifying our own you know, nearness to you, and we're just mean toward those who've wandered and strayed differently than we have. I pray that you'll forgive us. I pray that your spirit will point out our sin, will convict us, and cause us to be people who, who operate uh, according to kindness and mercy. I pray for those people in the room who have heard those messages of, of uh, condemnation that are mean-spirited and, and who have been turned off toward you, Jesus, or torn, turned off toward the church. And I pray that the posture that you showed on the cross would win the day and they'd be won by the love of Jesus. You said to the, to the woman caught in adultery, woman, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus, so fill us with your spirit that we would be a community of people who are anchored in the truth and motivated by mercy, who long like you to see all people come to saving faith in Jesus. I pray that as we receive the bread and the wine today, that you pour your spirit out on it and on us, that we may be transformed into the image of Jesus, full of grace and truth. Lord, we love you, we honor you, we trust you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.